Dungeon Master's Guide I've got a 12-sided die I've got Kitty Pride And Nightcrawler too Waiting there for me Yes, I do I do Welcome, welcome, welcome to a very, very special Blackcast this week. I'm going to be joined for the entire podcast by longtime X-Men writer Chris Claremont, who, for my nerd friends, this will be very exciting. If you are not a nerd, you don't like comics, or you just don't even like the X-Men, you might enjoy this, but I've already talked to him, and it took about an hour and a half, and I could have talked to him for another hour and a half. So this might not be the Blackcast for everyone. I hope you listened to it. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a great time talking to him. I mean, I even kind of delve into when I started reading the X-Men back in 1983. I'll tell you how old I am. So there's so much to talk to him about. I had such a great time. I hope you enjoy it. But if this isn't for you, next week it's going to be me, all the guys. So that'll be next week on the Blackcast. Joining me right now, though, uh, this is a huge thrill for me, uh, talking to uh, Chris Claremont, who, as I was thinking about it, I'm fairly sure I've read more words written by this man than any other writer in my life, uh, including his entire original, uninterrupted 17-year run as the writer of Uncanny X-Men. Chris, welcome to the Blackcast. Thanks so much for making the time for me. I really appreciate it. Oh, the pleasure's mine. Um, I, I don't know how often people start conversations like this for you, but uh, I, I thought I would tell you about how I first experienced the X-Men, at least in comics, because I saw them on a couple episodes of Spider-Man and his amazing friends when I was very little. And it, it was hardly an issue that you might think would be the best one. It was Uncanny X-Men number 176. And I'll, I'll remind you and our listeners that that's basically the issue after... Uh, the marriage. Yeah, exactly. After Scott and Madeline get married and he's uh, you know, they're on their honeymoon and he fights an octopus, if I remember that part correctly. So it, it's not necessarily the best gateway in, but there was so much going on in these sort of like a side stories. I'm like, well, I have to come back and figure out what, figure out what this is all about. But uh, I, it, it's, such a, it's such a fond memory for well, me. Well, pitching poor John... Junior in into the deep water, so to speak. <laughs> right, because I mean, he not only ended up having to to do a crash emergency fill in on the last five pages of uh, the wedding. Right. He then jumped into the honeymoon full tilt, and uh, it, it you know we just started crazy and went. Went crazier. <laughs> Went a little crazier. Year. Now, the most interesting thing that that I found from when I just mentioned Uncanny X-Men number 176, you, you knew right away which one that is, and I'm not going to start well, spouting out. Only n- because um, we just, we're just, Marvel just published the uh, 50th anniversary compilation, and the, the original story I wrote for it was, an untold sta- tale that occurs between 173 and 174. Right. It's, a, it's actually one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, which that's called uh-huh. X-Men Gold, mm-hmm. and that celebrates the 50th anniversary. And I, it went on sale this week, and uh, I, I actually did something I hadn't done in years. I went to a comic book store and bought a superhero comic that had come out that day, and I was really excited. And I loved that your story is set in that time frame because not only is that when I started reading, just over the summer I reread the Wolverine miniseries that I have mm-hmm. in a trade paperback, and that had 172 and 173 in there. So it's mm-hmm. almost like it was also fresh in my mind. 
And uh, I, I thought that the story was great. What was the thought of putting this X-Men Gold story in that spot, which ironically happened to be the 20th anniversary of the X-Men? Well, it, you know, when, when uh, Nick Lowe called up and said, do you want to do a story for the 50th anniversary? It, oddly enough, just I thought about it for a day or so, and we knew, you know, he had a an idea of when he wanted it to occur within the continuity, uh, which was somewhere in in the Cockrum, Byrne, Smith initial launch, you know, the first 10 years. Sure, yeah. And I just sat back and let, let things percolate in my head, and this sort of jumped out. Not the least of which reason was the ability to use it to bridge the release of Wolver- of the Wolverine in Midsummer with the forthcoming Days of Future Past in uh, what is now, thank goodness, May of next year. Yes, yes. So uh, the idea here was to come up with a story that presented the X-Men in a new light, which is the ability to utilize China as, as an active um, set for the story within the continuity and to have it occur right after the events of, of the disaster with Mariko. And yet the antagonists in the story were the Sentinels, which hopefully will register as a precursor yeah. to what will happen in, uh, in Days of Future Past. Was it your idea to involve the Sentinels because of the movie? And then also, I, I, I'm not quite sure, but I believe that they they first premiered maybe in X-Men number two or very early on. I know that they were one of the first. Uh, Sorry, you faded out? Um, was it your idea to involve the Sentinels also, not just because of the tie into the movie, but because they were one, among the first villains that the X-Men ever faced in the, uh, the well, early years? Well, I think it, to me, they haven't been used in a while. And... I, they have the advantage of not requiring a huge amount of explanation. And uh, in terms of where they fall into the, the, uh, the immediate continuity of, the, of, the, of the, those issues, they didn't, they didn't show up much in Paul's era. Right. And... Um, like seeing them in the future in Days of Future Past was sort of one of the only times, at least I can remember reading, mm-hmm. you know, in those those early early eighties issues. Well, we yeah. kept we wanted to keep them very at at a fairly restrained use, simply because they're such good characters, but they also needed technological updating every time we presented them because the the realities of 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 the world in terms of how you how you deal with tech like that had evolved as well in this instance it was a chance to set up introduce the the sentinels both in terms of how they worked in the movie but also to suggest the evolution that that I played with in X-Men Forever where they had morphed into a 
much more fluid and ideally scary iteration than we we were so used to seeing them as these giant sort of Martian monster right. um, clumsy thumpers. If you know, I sh- the idea was to shrink them down to maybe uh, ten feet tall, but make them fast and and modular. Right. And see what that could, if that could end up being as scary and imposing a reality. Right, and it's sort of kind of like a an in-between stage for the Sentinels uh, from, I, I guess, uh, Nimrod, who came around when, when I was yeah. a kid reading, sort of like that would be the ultimate iteration of the Sentinels, uh, mm-hmm. although I'm sure that they would be able to uh, figure out their own upgrades there, too. Um, we're talking to Chris Claremont about uh, X-Men Gold, which is uh, on sale now. One of the things I liked most about your story was that it was narrated by Kitty, who was always really my favorite, probably because I was so young when I started reading and I felt like I could identify with her. Was that the goal of actually having her become a member of the team, someone that might be well, in the, the age range of the audience? We hadn't, um, when John and I brought her in, we, you know, Jean had just died, and the challenge with the X-Men always was in those days the cast was a much more mature and experienced team than the original five uh, who were kids, basically. Um, this was a while later. And uh, Aurora was, as I was writing her, she was actually, you know, I... Um, Decided she was my age, which wasn't such a problem when I started in in '74. Uh, right. Well, she's in her mid twenties. What the hell? <laughs> sure. uh, obviously, twenty years later, it was like, oops, <laughs> maybe she's not my age anymore. <laughs> she was your age, yes. Um, you know, Logan was obviously much much older. Everybody was in their their uh, the end of their teens, early twenties, but they were all. They all registered and presented themselves as grown-ups and as fairly experienced with their powers, which was not the case with the original, the original five. Uh, Kitty was was designed. Her role in the team was to 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 reintroduce the teaching aspect of it to their reality. And uh, also to give Charlie something that was a functional pain in the neck, <laughs> because he—it's been a long time since he's had since, to deal since with he's little had kids. kids around. And I, I, I love the fact that you just refer to Professor Xavier as Charlie. I, I think well, he is Charlie. No, I no, mean, I, 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 I don't think I've ever thought of him like that in my life. I, I feel like Logan might have called him Chuck once or twice just to get under his skin. But uh, you're, no, you're absolutely right. He probably needed somebody to call him Charlie once in a while. You well, know, to kind of remind if, him. If you look, I hate to, to use the movie reference, but if you look at uh, James McAvoy's presentation of him compared to Patrick. You know, compared you know uh, Patrick Stewart, there he's he is younger and more more relaxed, yes. more likable. 
That's a, you no, know, it's a, yeah, you're well, right. That was He's one absolutely. One of the nice things yeah. about the first first class movie is that they came up with a vision of Charlie who acted occasionally like a putz, but was quite charming. You could you could see why. Ro, uh, sorry, why Mystique bonded herself to him? You know why? Why she trusted him? Uh, you could see why the uh, why Magneto came to trust him in their short time together. Yeah, the um, uh, the, the younger Charles Xavier yeah. seems a lot more approachable in, in the in the literal he, sense. Yeah. Well, he wasn't he wasn't as broken. Yeah. as as his older version presents himself. And not just physically, you know, emotionally. And I think that, I suspect, knowing Brian Singer's skill and and hoping that they, they you know, embrace all the, the elements of the potentials of the story, one of the things to be seen in Days of Future Past is the older Charlie who is who is healed and coming to terms with what has happened to him in a way relating to his younger self and trying to, you know, through Logan, help him, help him deal with being a paraplegic. Right. Uh, and, and not simply that, but deal with the responsibilities of being Charlie. Yeah, no, and and I I'm, I think that the the trailer for Days of Future Past does a great job in kind of you know just very minorly hinting and touching on those themes. You kind of see that it'll probably be really intense, and you know I, I tend to enjoy all the Marvel movies. I I I liked uh, the most recent Thor. I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to Captain America too. But when I heard that they were actually that the next X Men movie was going to be this sort of dual timeline Days of Future Past story, that immediately became the one I was most excited for. Partially because those those issues, the Uncanny X Men one forty one one forty two, those you know, it, it's and it's in a way, it's weird that it's such a short story because it kind of resonates through all the years that, that I continued to read that were published after that. So I, I'm glad that they're they're tackling that story, even though obviously we can already tell there's so many ways that it'll be different. But uh, well, I mean, the, the ways that look different are are, are merely the. I think that the visual texture of it, right? You know, when when I mean the the thing that knocked me off my feet right from the start is between the two the two combined casts, you have more raw and recognized talent than than. A lot of film than almost any film I can rem- remember in recent memory. Um, you know, you've you've got two best actress winners. You've got right, best I mean, supporting actors. Sure, yeah, supporting it's like, actress winners. You, you have Sarian McKellen. You have Patrick Stewart, and yeah, and then even in the younger cast, James McAvoy, who's been great in everything I've seen him in. Well, going back to Last King of Scotland, not just McAvoy, but but. Uh, Fassbender, yeah, yeah, exactly. You, uh, you've got, well, hell, between Stewart and Ian McKellen, you've got two Ks right there. (laughs) That's a great point. Yeah, you really do. You know, I mean, and 
probably more than a few potentials as well down the line. Um, Peter Dinglich is just wonderful. Uh, you know, the, the idea of him as, as Bolivar Trask is, is like, holy cow. Yeah, no, that, that was when I figured out who he was from the trailer. I'm like, well, this is going to be great because, you know, he's, he's always well, fantastic. Because he doesn't necessarily, that, he has the ability to, to do a guy who's incredibly nasty, but with a sense of charm. So, you, you know, you look at him and you think, mm, maybe he's not such a creep. Or worse, he is, and you like him anyway. Right. No. So that, uh, yeah, I mean that there's so much to explore with kind of even even those characters, you know, who aren't the the actual X Men or or the you yeah. know, any villains or anything. You and, sort of have and him. The fact that they've they've the fundamental change they've made, which I I I'm irked, but I understand. Uh, irked as the writer, I understand as as the professional, which is of necessity shifting the time traveling focus from Kitty to Logan. Yes, that that's actually something that I've talked about here on the podcast as much, as great as I think Hugh Jackman is as Wolverine. It's just that was always Kitty's story to me and and granted I'm I'm partial because of the fact that I liked the character so much, but I also thought Ellen Page did a great job and I'm glad to hear she is back as Kitty instead of recasting her yet again. Oh but, no, I think I think that to me that's brilliant. Yeah. Um and I think she would have been brilliant. But I also can sit there and think, well, and somebody at Fox was breathing a slightly deeper sigh of relief because putting making the focus Hugh Jackman will perhaps give them a little more global push to to recoup their investment. Right, definitely. And when you're talking nine figures, that's that's not to be sneered at. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. Um, yeah. hmm? I'm sorry. Uh, what I was going to say is that when I reread your and Frank Miller's original Wolverine series uh, mm-hmm. over the summer, it reminded me how much I liked the Kitty Pride and Wolverine series, and I, I reread that for the first time in, I don't even know, at least 20 years. Oh, yeah, and, no. I, and well. it's such a great story, and I, and I was thinking the whole time, I'm like, this would be a great movie, Hugh Jackman and Ellen Page. I can't mm-hmm. imagine that they would make it, because, or that they would make it like that, because there's always, you know, they always have to movie it up, for lack of a better term, which, like you, I understand, but you're always like, well, it's so good the way it is, it would be great to kind of try and see that on the screen. Well, I, I also I was thinking actually the way to do it would be to uh, produce it as an HBO or um, Netflix. Right, Marvel has that deal. Oh, actually, actually wouldn't be Marvel. That would be Fox. Would well, no, that. that's that's the thing that drives you crazy. Yeah. is that that um, it's a it's a for better or worse the X Men are are a Fox. Um, media product now right and that i think it it has an effect on on how marvel approaches the series as well because it's it's now i think much more reflexive in publishing for them to to think of the avengers as the favorite sons right of course because it's that's a wholly owned property whereas no matter how good the x-men or the Fantastic Four presented in comics, the company can't take 
full advantage of, of any success because they're not responsible for for doing any of the uh, TV or video. Right. I mean, they're so excited to have Daredevil back that they immediately gave him a series on Netflix. You know. Well, so, and yeah. and the, on the other hand, the flip side of the coin is, regardless of how the management at Fox might feel about the concept of a superhero TV show or movie to begin with, Avengers pretty much set the bar. And if you're a, a, a studio and you're looking at, well, Marvel and the Avengers made $1.4, billion. Right. And our films are making how much? <laughs> and, well, you know, well, how come we're only making $300 million per film or, or 250 or whatever? Why are we releasing at the end of summer when nobody cares? Why aren't we at least taking a shot at trying to score a billion dollars for ourselves with these characters? Right. Absolutely. So, you know, hopefully uh, we'll see if, if that rationale bears some, some positive fruit this, this May. I, my fingers are crossed. Yeah. But, you know, it's, the, it's ultimately the luck of the draw and the, the, the skill, I guess, of, of the creators. The flip side with the X-Men is it is a remarkably, the comic was always a, a, a totally international, a much more internationally focused group than any other Marvel team. Unlike the Avengers, it isn't exclusively North American. Right. I liked the point sort of later on in your run when they were based out of Australia just because it was so different. Well, I think it you have a you have an ability I mean what I always loved about writing it was okay, everybody else can you guys can have New York. You could even have continental U.S. I'll go play in the rest of the world, of which there was a whole lot to play with. Right. I mean, yeah. other than the West Coast Avengers and later Excalibur, it really the most of the of the entire world was kind of up for grabs. Yeah. Well, it was all virgin territory. Um, you know, I, uh, my hope with X Men was what I ended up doing later on in in various miniseries was to establish uh, a cluster of of co- uh, subcontinental indian heroes uh of chinese heroes of of southeast asian heroes it, you know uh, and adversaries and take the team without leaving the planet, into cultures they've never seen before, mythologies they've never been a part of before, realities that, that they were never a part of before, and, and create a mix and figure out what happens. I mean, to me, that, that, would, that would be the most interesting challenge. Um, just to take a, Claremont, a basic Claremont trope, I'm most notorious for 
what is perceived as my emphasis on women in the X-Men, um, my thought back in the day was, okay, what would it be like if we if we ran into a situation where um, a young Saudi teenager suddenly developed superpowers and had to deal with being a a super being, a superhero, but within the structure and prejudices and beliefs of of a much more um, conservative uh, uh, social homeland. Right. You know, what what impact would that have? I, I think the whole idea of the you know the all new different all new all different the giant size X Men was I, I don't know how much of it there had been before that all of a sudden you know uh, Charlie is pulling all these uh, these mutants he's aware of from around the world and putting them together and they were so ethnically diverse which now I, I don't think you'd look twice but it, my understanding was not only were the characters largely white North Americans, they were almost all men. I mean, aside Mm -hmm. from like Sue Storm and the Wasp, there's not Mm -hmm. that many that stood out as, you know, kind of major characters. Well, that was the basic, the basic paradigm of any, any team back in the day. Uh, You had a bunch of guys grouped around the girl. Right. Even the original X-Men, obviously. Oh, the X-Men, the Justice League, uh, Star Trek, Right. You know, there was always it was always a bunch of guys because everybody likes guys and there was a girl. And the, I mean, in terms of Star Trek, the wonderful thing about the TV series was Uhura was the woman on the bridge and pretty much in many respects the only woman on the bridge and yet she was, and it was it was clearly obvious that she was a, a, a beautiful and a single woman, but she was just one of the one of the crew. She was right. one of the officers. You did not you did not do shenanigans with one of your with with one of your senior staff. Right, she wasn't Nurse Chapel, you know. She was uh, she was much much higher up on the food e- chain and, and an equal. Even really. Nurse, well, Nurse Chapel was stuck because she had a her fonge for for Spock. Yeah, right, but uh, no, and I think it was it it was a way it was Roddenberry's way of establishing a woman in a position of authority being treated as an equal in in all the ways that counted. With the respect due an officer, respect due a person of of uh, of rank in the in the starship uh, pecking order, um, it it established a standard that that it would be twenty years before before uh, military reality caught up with it in terms of of. Women serving as officers on on uh, you know naval vessels certainly, in in the U.S. Navy, and it that that in its way is the 
ideal function of science fiction to to take the reality as you see it around you tweak it just a touch and and throw the result out there for everybody to look at and maybe ride the crest of of an evolution in in social thinking to suddenly where that reality has become the norm rather than the exception and that's very cool no and i think with the x-men the idea was we the all the women are gorgeous yes because all the guys are gorgeous because let's face it artists like drawing beautiful people right but the essence is to make them as re- as human and and realistic as we can possibly get away with so that that the fact that they're attractive is merely an element a reality of of the game what's important is what's underneath what's in what's in everybody's mind and everybody's heart and that there are times when you can sit back and say Aurora is just as good at leading the team and maybe more necessary than Scott is. And who knows, can Rogue do that? Should Rogue do that? Uh, can Betsy do it? Can Colossus do it? Can Kurt, who ended up being the tactical leader of, of Excalibur, lead the team? And should he? Well, yes. Why Why should he not, just because he's blue and furry? Right. Uh, one of the things that I, I learned from X-Men Gold is sort of one of the previews later, later in it is, uh, you know, I don't I haven't kept up on, on the current books in, in quite a few number of years, but mm-hmm. I see they have uh, they have Kitty and uh, Colossus's sister, who, to be honest, I've never understood how to pronounce her name. Is it is it Ileana or... Eliana. Okay, so I wasn't I wasn't really far off. So the idea of having them, you know, sort of training some kind of time travel thing that I didn't quite get of the original X Men. I'm like, well, this is really interesting. The idea that you know at this point they could. Yeah, I, I don't trust me. I don't get it either. And, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, for the most part, they're all my characters. Right. Um, the 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 really amusing thing I find, however, is as I understand it and. God knows I could be humongously wrong. The ongoing arc with the original team is they're they're going off to roam through outer space because right. it's too confusing for them to be on Earth with their older versions of themselves. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, what always gets me in stories like this is that, okay... But if you're the younger version of the older selves that we're all familiar with, why don't any of them remember you? Right. <laughs> or us, or what's going on. And if they don't, then you're from another dimension, in which case this is a whole different concept story. Right, exactly. And, and it also gets needlessly complicated, which you know, well, DC, then, DC tried the, to deal with with Crisis. Yeah. The punchline of this, we're, we're off to explore outer space, is... Somewhere along the line, they're going to run into the Shi'ar. And as far as the Shi'ar are concerned, Gene is still the Gene who ate a planet. Right. So, 
evidently Brian wants to take take on the the side of the story that I decided was not was not viable, which is they've got to face the consequences of what Dark Phoenix did. Right. And you know that's that. I will be intrigued to see how that how that affects both the external reality of the characters sure. because are they suddenly the most wanted human beings in the universe and b the internal realities how can gene or how will gene relate to the fact that that she is responsible a future iteration of her is responsible for genocide right and then it, it sort of turns into that that old time travel paradox of this young Jean Grey didn't do it, but if we kill her, it's like, can we, you know, it's, do you go back in time and kill Hitler, basically? You know, well, should you do that? If, if a 20-year-old Hitler shows up in the present, killing her won't make a difference. Right. I mean, the thing is, this is, this is the, the, the part of time travel that makes your head explode, because if you go to the future and kill, if Hitler goes to the future and somebody kills him, does that automatically change history? Right. I mean, uh, I did, a, oddly enough, a story where Kitty and Rachel find themselves in 1936 uh, Britain during the, the abdication. And Kitty gets involved with Nazis and in the process runs into Logan in 1936 and uh, Mystique and Destiny, except wow. that Mystique in this era is presenting herself as a man, a consulting detective, and Irene Adler. More than that gets too confusing and will probably get us bopped on the nose by the, uh, the uh, Conan Doyle estate. <laughs> right, exactly. But... The whole point here was that Kitty, her reaction is a gut response. Okay, if I'm stuck in 1936, I'm going to Berlin, and we'll see how many of how many of of the Nazi hierarchy I can kill in a night. And she has it all worked out in her head. She'll just walk in, say, "Grab Hitler," phase down about 50 feet into the ground, and let him go. And then she'll do Goebbels, and then she'll do Goering, and then she'll do Heydrich, and just work her way down through the the high, you know, the top echelons of the Reich until they're all gone. Right. And she has no problem with that at all, because she will she will have prevented the Holocaust. Except once you do that. If there is no Second World War, if there is no Holocaust, if there is no primal confrontation of good and evil, what next for the world? Where does history go in the, in the subsequent 75 years? Yeah, I mean, if you just look at it on a domestic level, you know, well, what happens about the U.S. getting out of the Depression? You know, I mean, well, not having all the war jobs. Theoretically, we'll still bomb Pearl Harbor True. at some point. Yeah. 
Except will they if there's no if there's no uh pack you know alliance pact between the the Japanese Empire and Nazi Germany. If Nazi Germany collapses or becomes a more restrained, respectable state, you know, what what then? Uh this is where you, you, you tumble into science fiction alternate reality scenarios. And it it just gets it it gets crazier and crazier. Um and who knows what the you know, if you don't have the the primal moral conflict of World War Two to to basically lock the world into a mode of behavior which which says there are certain weapons you cannot use, there are certain acts that are are too beyond the pale for anybody to to consider. Does that mean we get to the 21st century and all those moments are still yet to happen? If there is no Hiroshima, there is no Nagasaki, then the nuclear option, there's no, there's no raw example for everybody to look at and say, do you really want to do that on a global scale? Right. For, for us to sit back and think, maybe not. Right, I mean, it's, it's such still a... there as a as a potential, and and is that a good thing or or a, a you know will that will it the end result be better or worse? And that's that's again, this is what science fiction is great for playing with, and this is what I was I loved so much about the X Men, where you could step over the line and do something that was unforgivable and then face the consequences. That was what made, even though we, we had to stumble quite dramatically at the end to get it done. Right. My understanding is that your original plan wasn't... And right for the series. Yeah. Uh, because it it showed that there was a line that 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 human beings should not cross, and that if you do cross it, even if you are fundamentally innocent, which in that context she was, there are consequences. Right. That was and, always my understanding was that your plan originally for that issue uh, one thirty seven of Uncanny X Men was that. Somehow, you know, Jean wouldn't die. Maybe she would lose the Phoenix Force or, or whatever that was. But then it was sort of mandated that you you had to. Oh have no, that. we were we were playing by classic comic book rules, sure. which is that the no matter what the hero does, the hero co- has to come back next issue. Right, of course. So we 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 gimmicked the reality so that Jean was forgiven. You know, they they dealt with the evil which is theoretically what they perceived as evil, which was the phoenix, and left the host okay. And this is where Shooter, Jim Shooter did what, what good, if not great, editors must do in a situation like that, which is stand up and say, 
wait a minute, you haven't thought this through. Right. There are certain, you know, there are certain things that you cannot forgive, that you cannot get away with. This perhaps is one of them. And the beauty of that was that even though it was a total f- structural foobar from the, you know, uh, in that we saw, John and I thought it had all been approved and, right. and it hadn't, it led us to the point where we had to confront the action and figure out an appropriate, unnecessary response. And the one that I chose as writer was to end it. Right. And that was the most, it turned out to be the, the most powerful, the most horrifying for the audience because we killed off one of the, what turned out to be one of the more beloved characters in the Pantheon. And establish that you you know that that there there is a line, there really is, and and we have to we have to be aware of that. Do you think that the the following several years, you know, while Gene remained dead, which we can get to that later, but you feel like those stories are are better because she had to die, and you were able to kind of have much deeper, specifically with in terms of Cyclops. You feel like it, it was definitely the right decision as you look back. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, that 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 was where we all earned our our money. That that's for sure. Jim is editor in chief. Uh, Louise Simonson as editor, me as writer, John as artist. Right. Uh, that was where that, and Dave as creator, Dave Cockrum. That was the culmination of all of this. Uh, we came up with a story that, that, you know, one of those pieces that if you have to define what it is that makes the X-Men the X-Men, there it is. Yeah. And, the 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 ultimate punchline, which which I, I find even more delightful, is four, four issues later we topped it, which nobody saw coming. With Days of Future Past, <laughs> right? It, which says on the cover, as I remember, this issue everybody dies, and you know, granted, it's in the future, but everybody does die. Yeah. Uh, well, not quite everybody. Right. That's true. You know, Kitty gets out, and and uh, Rachel gets out. Right. But yeah, that was the, the whole point was that that we didn't. We also didn't give every anybody an out at the end and say, "Yes, the future is changed. It's a happy ending." The rule we established was, even though we're showing you what's happening in the future. Our point of view is the present. Right. And no one will know what will happen until we get there, and by then it'll be too late. Right. That's sort of a, a theme that, that looms over the Terminator franchise. It's, you know, they, but, they go back, they try and fix things, and the future's actually still pretty messed up. Yeah, but we came first. <laughs> right. Oh, no, exactly. That's, that was the point. <laughs> I'm trying to give you the credit that, uh, you know, somewhere, somewhere Jim Cameron uh, was like, oh, all right, yeah, let me, let me work on that. Well, um, no, we're all and we're all muttering about, uh, you know, about uh, time machine, which is what really, you know, got all this going. 
Right, of course, yeah. Um, one of the things that I found recently in sort of reading interviews uh, that you had done over the years that I didn't realize, you kind of had this great idea for, for Scott to basically go off and live happily ever after with Madeline, yeah. which is such a great idea because, you know, you, you see that a lot of times happen on TV shows mostly because an actor is going to leave. It doesn't really happen in comics, and unfortunately it wasn't able, able to happen for uh, for Scott. But my question is, when you were thinking about those stories at that time, was basically, in your mind, was Madeline just happened to have this eerie resemblance to Jean and not part of some sinister, pun intended, project that to clone her or anything like that? Oh, no, no, no. That, it was just, it, it was the old premise of everybody has a, there's a theory that everybody has their, a double somewhere on Earth. You know? Right. Um, do you look like? An awful lot like. Um, no, the thing with Madeline was that the she was always meant to be a red herring. Uh, that that was the whole subplot of the arc with her during Smitty's issues leading up to the wedding. Right. He was never sure, and we were never sure: is this Gene or not? And Mastermind used it to his advantage. But the ultimate answer was no, dummies. We're not that. <laughs> we're not that manipulative, and we're not that cynical. But un- unfortunately, years well, later, that, we didn't. You know, yeah. none of us knew that that uh, X Factor was waiting in the wings. Right, which is is sort of, and I can understand this kind of being a, a bone of contention for a number of people. That the all of a sudden it's like, well, yeah, we had to kill Gene, but now we'll kind of figure out a way around it. But the biggest problem, and for me, even at the time, and I think when X Factor premiered or was released, I think I was nine or ten, and I was just like, "Wait a minute, isn't isn't Scott married? And aren't they having a baby? Wait, wait why is he running off to go hang out with his his ex girlfriend?" Well, because the creators of X Factor were were thinking solely in terms of we want to reestablish the original team, the realities that existed in the other books at that point were irrelevant. Right. Um, which was fine in terms of, of Hank and Bobby and uh, Warren because they the were de- unattached. Yeah, when the Defenders had ended prior I mean, to th- that. This yeah. is why, you know, my, my first reaction when I heard about this was to go to Shooter and sit down with him and say, look, here's where a way you can have your cake and eat it. Establish X Factor. Don't use Jean. Use her her big sister Rachel, uh, Sarah. Sorry. Oh right, yeah. Now you have a gray. You have a gray with a different power. But you know, which Un- undoubtedly, who had red hair. You know, I and mean, red hair. Yeah. We have a gray who doesn't want to be part of this reality. So you have a conflict right off the bat. Scott is still happily married to to uh, Madeline, and let's face it, Madeline meeting Rachel, uh, meeting Sarah will be an interesting reality in and of itself. Because yeah. oh my God, you look just like my sister, right. my dead sister. Oh boy, <laughs> so that'll be fun. But more importantly, if you leave Scott off of the sort of emotional roller coaster Sarah is now the focus of 
Bobby and Hank and Warren. And they can have some fun. Right. Instead, if you bring back Gene, it's Scott and Gene and the other three boys, which is sort of like been there, done that. Yeah, no, I mean, you know? it's, it, it, I mean, I, I do understand it. Like we were talking about the movies, there's, there's all these business decisions that come down to, to money. And, and it, I understand why that decision was made. But yeah, this idea that you presented, it just, I feel like from a storytelling and as a st- standpoint. Well, no, reader, from, a, for, from a storytelling point of view, it, it seemed to me that you had a lot more interesting potential with, with a new character who was linked into the original uh, mythology, but wasn't part right. of it, and who came and was coming in with emotional uh, conflicts and baggage all her own. But uh, and Jim, you know, to his credit, felt it was a great idea. You know, if I, he said if I wanted to play with that, I could. But he was at this point wedded to the the marketing impact of bringing back Gene. And I could argue with him from a philosophical standpoint, but from a purely business standpoint, um, I saw his, I, I saw what he, you know, I could understand the rationale. And even if I thought it was wrong, which I did, right? he had, you know, it was his job, not mine. Um, well, and that you know, that was that was the way it was. Right. I'm having a great time talking to Chris Claremont about uh, the X Men, and uh, there, you know, literally, I could do this for hours. But I know you have uh, some other projects that I did want to give you a chance to talk about, <laughs> since I'm, I've taken up so much of your time, <clears throat> nowhere near, you know, much more than I had planned. Oh, pleasure was mine. Well, Thank but uh, let's talk about. Uh, a few things. Um, I, you know, I actually uh, talked to you once before many years ago at a, com- a comic convention in New York where they have these very strict limits of, you know, you can only get like five books signed. Mm-hmm. I had a whole stack of Uncanny X-Men, but I also had your book, First Flight. So you signed the book and you were like, well, you have the book. I'm going to sign all these, which I appreciated because I-, I had a lot of them also signed by Dave Cockrum, who I'd met mm-hmm. at a uh, convention. And so I wanted to mention that First Flight is part of a, a trilogy, uh, I mm-hmm. believe, High Frontier. And mm-hmm. so First Flight's the first one, Grounded's the second, and Sundowner. And they're all available as ebooks now. Mm-hmm. And they, our listeners can find out more at chrisclaremont.com. Um, take a minute and just talk a little bit about those stories and how it first came about. Because I believe you wrote the first one right towards the end of your run on X-Men, maybe in the late no, 80s. No, actually, I, I wrote the first one back in the early 70s. It just oh, wow. went through okay. a lot of rewrites before it got sold. Um, it was just me playing with, I mean, I started out as a writer writing science fiction. Comics was sort of second on the list. Uh, so to me, it was, it was a really cool idea of, of thinking ahead to the mid 21st century, you know, heck 2050. Who's ever going to get that far? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Much the same as thinking of the X-Men. Oh, yeah, right. We're writing it here in 1980. I'll, we'll just put Days of Future Past in the impossible-to-imagine days of 2013. Right, yeah, like, exactly. Who's going to be around? There, there, there won't be X-Men. Who knows if there'll even be Marvel? No one will care. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's, 
you know, what was it? They had uh, on TBS last night, they were showing Soylent Green. Oh, of course. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, it's interesting. Looking at it now, it's not quite as bad as I remember it. Right. <laughs> but what I found hysterically funny was their their backlot evocation of New York in 2013 with global warming gone mad and and the economy's destroyed and i'm thinking god back in 1973 you're looking ahead and thinking oh yeah this has got to be 50 years from now the world is going to be a total <laughs> blah 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 right exactly you no know, and who'd have figured yeah on one hand uh stanley kubrick figured you know his he and arthur clark estimated that by 2001 we'd be halfway to to saturn right <laughs> you know and and that didn't happen uh Sterling green figured we'd be halfway to the we'd be in the middle of the apocalypse that hasn't happened um reality has a way of trumping all the expectations right I mean, exactly. whoever would have thought 50 years ago that the world would be looking at China as the source of vast market potential. Oh, yes, and and lots of cash. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. You know, to, take, to take it back to Star Trek for a second, you know, the uh, – the the tricorders and the communicators, you know, basically, except for the phaser, you're like, well, yeah, I have all that in a much smaller device. It's a cell phone. Well, you the know? amusing <laughs> thing is that the, the the communicators look so old school now, even in the movie. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Wow, those are really old, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, I believe I had that. I had that StarTech flip phone on my belt in two thousand. Yeah, well, the, the, I still have one. <laughs> you know, uh, but the 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 operative theorem theorem is presumably not what it looks like, but what how much you can cram into it in terms of of hard drives and capabilities. Right. So but, to to bring it back to your high frontier novels, do you do you well, look back the at the idea was to think ahead to the mid twenty first century? Right. The 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 kick was that well the unexpected reality that that changed the game was the invention of a of a star drive. Right. That suddenly, at a point when we were still trying to figure out how to get to. Mars, let's say, we have a capability to get to uh, systems that are 20, 30, 40 lights away. And indeed, that was one of the, the, the points made in, in first flight is we're, we're running out and exploring the galaxy, and we haven't even properly explored the solar system. Right. We don't know for, you know, from an eye eyes on point of view what's out there but we're just dancing you know it, it's like if in your horse and buggy days back in the 16th century you suddenly came up with with you know a hydrofoil uh solar power and you could cross the atlantic 
in you know three days, whereas you know, for going around locally in England, it would take you weeks. You know, just uh, in a sailboat. Right. And and how do you how do you balance how do you find a way to equal the balance? And that that was sort of like the um, the the moral heart of the books. Um, the, the technology was throwing us into the deep end of the pool before we'd actually learned how to swim properly. And we were discovering that there were not only other people in the pool, but sharks. And how do you deal with it? Right. And that was, for me anyway, the idea of, of the trilogy, starting with, you know, in first flight with them running into, for want of a better name, pirates and freebooters out in the asteroid belt. Right. Because, you know, you can't call for help out you know, it'll. You can call for help, but it'll take a day or two for the the message to get in, and then it'll take a lot longer for the the local law to catch up to you. And by then, you're you know you're looted and pillaged, and the bad guys have made their escape. To suddenly discovering, oh, we're not alone in the galaxy. And then, what effect does that have on everyone back home who've you know, turn on their TV and, and get to see repeat after repeat of the day the Earth stood still. Right. You know, uh, where, what do you do when, when you discover, a, you know, what do you do if you're the Indians and you've just run into uh, Columbus? Yeah. You know, knowing what that... If you have a knowledge of what that'll do to your to your society let, in the let, next hundred years, yeah, you let him keep his blankets. That's the first. Well, thing maybe it's better to sink him and not, you know, leave the Europeans stay where it is. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, so the uh, the three books we're talking about with Chris mm-hmm. Claremont are High Frontier is the trilogy, First Flight, Grounded, Sundowner, all available as eBooks. Find out more at chrisclaremont.com. The High Frontier Trilogy, yeah. Yes. And uh, another uh, current project that I was told that you have, and uh, I, I'm going to admit I'm not familiar with this, it's with uh, artist John Bolton, whom I first, yes, I first became aware of him, actually, while he was illustrating those additional stories in the back of classic mm-hmm. X-Men. And yep. it's such a unique style. So tell us a little bit about Murata um, the She-Wolf. Murata. Murata the She-Wolf. The she- yeah, the She-Wolf part is like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> But it looked really cool on the cover. Right. Uh, It's historical fantasy. The the premise is it's the last century B.C., the end of the last century B.C. Uh, Murata's mom is the daughter of Gaius Julius Caesar. Um. the the fear in in history caesar and his wife had two children one of whom died at birth a daughter and the other didn't survive much long after that the so the what if reality of of the the visual story is suppose that daughter hadn't died right 
cut ahead 20 years. She's grown up. Um, what, what happens as a result? Well, Caesar comes back from, from England. He has uh, a hostage slave who is a prince among his own people, uh, but who has sworn allegiance to Caesar. He meets the daughter. The daughter meets him. They fall in love. They begin a, a surreptitious affair. Um, Caesar is killed by Brutus. There begins the Civil War. As a consequence, the relation, their relationship gets made public. The, the father gets uh, killed in the arena. And Marada's mother and her newborn child flee Rome, never to be seen again. Cut ahead 20 years. Uh, Octavian is now Augustus, the emperor of Rome. Marada is running around the Eastern Empire as making a name for herself as a warrior. And is unwittingly, well, is caught up in, in uh, Roman shenanigans because there are, there are people who know the truth and will use her as a means of, of pressuring the emperor. Right. And that, that basically is the, the base moment that, that starts the story on its, um, starts the story going. Now, is this a uh, is it a trade paperback? Is it an ongoing series, it's, uh, it's or where do we find by it? Titan Books as a hardcover. Okay, which is a comp- it's a compilation of all the existing Murata material, which is three stories basically about um, seventy five to a hundred pages, right? Uh, by myself and John Bolton, and our hope, ideally, is that if um, the book sells. If there is an interest in it, uh, and if Titan can persuade John to um, come aboard, we'll do the the next story in the in the arc, which is her actually getting back to Rome, and. Uh, Lots of fun happening there. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and it's it's just called Murata. Don't you don't need the she wolf. You just you can just look for it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, well, hang on. Let me pull out a copy, and I can tell you exactly. Since it just happens to be lying right next Perfect. to me. How's that for timing? <laughs> no, it actually says Murata the she wolf. Okay, so uh, from so, Titan Books. Right. It's, it's a I must say, from a purely prejudiced aspect. An absolutely gorgeous-looking hardcover. Well, I can imagine, especially. And John's art is yeah, that's what. It... And this is actually the third. This is the first time that the third story. Well, technically, I guess it's the fourth in the in the canon, uh, which is Wizard's Mask, has ever been reprinted. So uh, it um, it's really not a bad. I, I'm totally prejudiced. Yes. But, <laughs> You know, John's art is just 
breathtaking. I could imagine how great it would look, you know, on sort of, you know, because I'm, I'm used to having seen it years and years ago on newsprint, essentially. So in, in a nice well, hardcover it, book like this would be great. It's not, it's not simply a technical exercise. I mean, John is a brilliant artist to begin with, and his presentation of, of character is is breathtakingly powerful, and his imagination is just ridiculous. Um, it the I guess the one the writer frustration with something like Murata is that it it's grounded in reality, so it it is limited by reality. He's done stories with um, and the Senti among others that are are far more avant-garde and and just it wonderful just wonderful so you know john is one of those gifted talents that can do damn near anything right and uh the hope my hope always is if i get another chance to work with him to find a way to exploit that potential to my own delight as a creator and the the audience's satisfaction as readers. So we'll keep our fingers crossed and, yeah. and hope for the very, very best. Well, it, it sounds great, and uh, we'll keep an eye out for it, and I'm sure you can find out more about that as well at chrisclaremont.com. Now, you've been so generous with your time. I'm going to selfishly ask you two more, make two more points. Mm-hmm. One of them I really wanted to ask because I'm hoping that I'm about to ask you a question about a comic that I figure you've either never been asked or at least not in years, which I remembered this and I researched it to make sure I remembered it right. There mm-hmm. was a Marvel team up you wrote where mm-hmm. Spider-Man was teamed up with the original not ready for primetime players mm-hmm. at SNL. Um, talk a little bit about how that came about and did you get to go to a live show to research it or did uh, you just see what was on TV? Um, well, there there are advantages to living in New York. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh we were just sitting around the office one day shooting the breeze. And, you know, well, we got to come up with some neat stuff for Timo. Anybody got any ideas? And uh, Saturday Night Live had just launched. It was, they were just rolling into their second season, I think, which tells you how long ago this was. Right. Yeah. It's so long ago that Bill Murray was new to the cast. <laughs> well,. Chevy Chase had just left. Bill yes. Murray had just come in, and it was a Bill Murray with lots of hair, which <laughs> hardly anybody recognizes. So, so, something, something to tell kids and grandkids about around yeah. the world. <laughs> and uh, I think it was Jim might have been the one who actually, you know, well, we I think the way the conversation went was, you know, it'd be cool if we could just find a way to, you know, Spidey and Saturday Night Live. And Jim says, well, why don't you call him up? <laughs> and I, I think we all looked at him. I looked at him and, what? Yeah. Call him up. So I figured, what the hell? Um, so I called over, you know, to NBC and um, got Lauren Michaels' office and said, you know, identified myself, said we we're from Marvel Comics. We want to know if, if they'd ever be interested in doing a team-up for Marvel team-up with the not-ready-for-prime-time players and Spider-Man. And there was this pause at the other end, and the lady <laughs> I was talking to said, 
who are you? <laughs> and I did the whole thing again. Um, okay, look, can we get back to you? <laughs> and I said, sure, sure, not a problem. You know, and uh, looked around the room and said, well, I don't think that went well. Right. But you know, nothing you can do about it. Three minutes later, the phone rings in Shooter's office, and it's like, yeah. The front desk, they have somebody from NBC wanting to know if this is Marvel Comics, which it was, and could they speak to Jim Shooter? And Jim picked up the phone and said, yeah, this is Jim. Yeah, yeah, we just called you. Yeah, 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 we're serious. And apparently what was going on was a mutual, holy shit, <laughs> on both sides of the phone. I mean, uh the, the, you know, Belushi and the guys over at SNL were were as floored by, wow, Marvel called us, as we are like, wow, NBC <laughs> answered. <laughs> we were all, like, painfully young. <laughs> right, of course. And yeah. <laughs> uh, we drew up the deal, uh, you know, uh, one time only. Uh Got released. I have. I still have them on file. The release uh, releases signed by all the cast. Oh, great! And I, you know, went to about oh four. Not the the actual shows, but the the, the dress uh, rehearsal. No, the dress rehearsals were much more fun. Right. No, exactly. I, I was a I was a page at NBC, and and I had also interned at SNL in the late nineties. And what I would always tell people, I'm like. Look, the the live show, it's great. You're seeing something live. But if you go to the dress rehearsal, mm -hmm. it's a little bit more laid back. It's a half hour longer. You're going to see stuff that you'll literally never see if you don't mm -hmm. go. So go to the dress rehearsal. I always found the dress rehearsal to be fascinating. And I, I've always sort of been a huge fan of SNL. And, and now, you know, I mean, I, I work for Dennis Miller, who did Weekend Update for five years. So, I I, yeah, so obviously it's uh, it was just one of those things I needed to ask you. But so there's two things that I loved about the comic. The first is that the show within the comic was hosted by Stan, of course. And well, uh, I figured that we had to get him on TV somehow. Yeah, right. Exactly. I, do, I figured it'd be cool if they ever did it, but we didn't think they ever would. Right. And the notion of uh, uh, I'm looking at, uh, at the cover on a computer right now and, and I see Belushi squared up against the Silver Samurai. So mm -hmm. that it just that, you know, it's like, well, of course, who else would who else would you have invade Studio 8H? Well, the, 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 the funniest part, actually, was the book comes out and I'm at I back then I lived up in Inwood top of the at the top of Manhattan and I get a call one morning and I'm you know just working and it's shooter and he said how fast can you get down here and I said what do you mean uh well John Belushi is going to be here in about 20 minutes wow I said I'll be there in 15 <laughs> yeah got jumped in the shower got dressed got a cab got down there beat him by about three minutes and Belushi comes in and it's like wow you're John Belushi. And he's going, wow, this is Marvel Comics. And, you know, <laughs> the office was so different then than it is today. Much, much less corporate, more, more anarchic, to say the least. Right. Um, Dave Cockrum's wife, uh, Patty, Patty. Oh, Patty, sorry. Comes in and immediately becomes a samurai. 
just pulls her hair back, grabs a grabs a, a three foot ruler, and just does, you know, Kurosawa moments. And Belushi just responded and you know had a, a thirty three second what the hell, and then gave her as good as she got. And we're looking, wow, this is so cool. And you know, he looks at me and he said, "The story was great." And I look at him and I say, "Oh God, John, thank you. You have no idea how hard it is to write comedy." <laughs> and he gives me this look like, "Are you a, are you an idiot?" <laughs> and Shooter just pats me on the head and just says, "Don't worry, John. We only let him out like on alternate Wednesdays." <laughs> and it's suddenly that it, the 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 wires connected in my head, and I thought. Oh, he does. Know. I just made a fool of myself, <laughs> which was my standard way of dealing with everything real in reality. But it was it was marvelous, if you'll pardon the pun. Right, of course. And so then Belushi says, "Do you guys want to come to the premiere of Animal House?" Oh wow! Yeah, it shows you how far back we're going. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and we said, "Cool, yeah." Turns out we couldn't go to the premiere of Animal House because they'd sold out Radio City. Oh, wow. So we were sad. And he said, well, how about you come to the cast party instead? Wow. The and cast parties said, the cast parties okay. at that time. Yeah, the cast parties at that time were probably a little different than the cast parties I went to in 1998. Well, it was, it was just wonderful. I mean, we went in there and we were hanging out. We, we just brought pages. We gave... You know, pages to John, pages to Elaine. Right. I mean, everybody got a page that wanted one. Uh, it was just wonderful. You know, um, Lorraine Newman was, was you know, I mean, Gilda was a, a, even more of a, a hoot. You know, she was she was wonderful. It, uh, it was just one of those, you know. And I got, you know, I ended up hanging out at a, a bunch of, of um, dress rehearsals, right? And you know, even after the book came out, because it it was just fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, ended up going to the rap parties, which you know, um, silly as it sounds to say, yet again, was just totally fun. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it's it's almost and like it was, it's like high school graduation those, every year for well, them. It, yeah. it was such a different reality of corporate life in those days. We were young punks. Uh, they were young punks. It was cool. Yeah. You know, there was no, no there was no hierarchy really to deal with, um, and. And it was it was a it was simply done, and and wonderfully done, and that's it's a far more formal and structured and corporatized environment now. And yeah, I'm sure that's true for both Marvel and NBC. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, absolutely across the board. Yeah, and it's not a it's not a Marvel. It's not exclusive to Marvel. It's not exclusive to NBC or, or anyone else. It's just the nature of how things have evolved, have evolved over the yeah. last 30 years. It, but it was, it was just fun. 
and that it was one of the one of those moments that that made working in comics so cool yeah because out of left field i mean today it would have been you know it would have you would have had press releases up down and sideways over every conceivable um information route you could come up with uh then we just did it yeah. and it wasn't even what would be considered an a plus creative team it was it was normal you know we had normal guys normal situation normal book extraordinary um end result yeah well and one of those rare things that'll never be reprinted Right, exactly, because you had mentioned when you start talking about it, it was a one-off, and in fact, I I, I kind of remember uh, Marvel Tales or something reprinting that era that that you had written of uh, Marvel Team Up, and they conspicuously skipped that one, and that's kind mm-hmm. of how I found out that this thing even existed, and I tracked it down. It was not a particularly expensive comic. I don't know what the value no, is on it. But, yeah, but no, no, I mean as a as a uh, as a back issue, it wasn't. You know, the, the price wasn't jacked up. People weren't really looking for it, but I was so glad to find it because mm-hmm. it, it's such an unusual thing and i'm so gl- i'm so glad i asked you about it just now because that answer is great and uh i i do still have the one more point and then i will let you go uh mm-hmm. mercifully um there's two of my favorite x-men stories that couldn't be more different and the first is kitty's bedtime story which for mm-hmm. our listeners is on candy x-men 153 where Kitty tells, fairy tale. yeah, Kitty, Kitty's fairy tale. You're right. Tells the story to uh, Ileana about, you know, and it incorporates sort of these alternate versions of uh, of Nightcrawler and Logan. And um, I, I want to kind of ask how that even came about, but also the at the same time, it's such the opposite end of the spectrum. I was blown away by God Loves Man Kills, which you know, it loosely turned into the second X-Men movie. At mm-hmm. least it was some of the same idea. So the fact that the same very different stories kind of come out, and I don't think they came out quite around the same time, but uh, just kind of talk about navigating and being able to tell such very different stories in kind of a short span. Well, I mean, God Loves Man Kills was... It was the graphic novel. Yes. I mean, it... it uh, Marvel had just established the graphic novel line. Um, you know, Epic hadn't quite come into being yet. Uh, we wanted, we wanted to hit. You know, I wanted to create an X Men story that we couldn't or wouldn't do in the regular run of the book. If you had to encapsulate it all into one single event what would the story be yeah. and why would it be and and how would it be and Weezy and I sat down and we came up you know I came up with this idea and she let me run with it and originally it was supposed to team up me and Neil Adams oh wow and he did six wonderful pages off, just off the top of his head uh, had nothing to do with the story, but it was the X Men versus Magneto, and uh, just to show everybody he could draw them. All right. And for some reason, that fell through. 
uh, and Brian Anderson and I got together and and did the graphic novel. And again, my problem, I guess, as a as a creator was, I'd done every. I found myself doing everything in that novel that that made it a graphic novel. And if I had to give any single X-Men to anybody to show what the series was all about, that would be the story. And once I'd done that, I, there was no... I didn't have another novel to tell right. in that format. Uh, so I, in, a, in a perverse sort of way, I shot my wad. Uh, <laughs> the first with, time out. Uh, it was a one-off because... Yeah. Anything else I would have done, I could have done in any any of the other publishing variants we were coming up with at the time, whether it was a mini series or or a giant size special, the way which was the what Ar- Arthur Adams and I did with the Asgardian Wars. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which, um, but that was all regular runs of the books. This this. God Loves was meant to be the X-Men in as close as we could manage to the real world and hopefully in the process show the readership why they mattered, why this team was important, why what they were dealing with was relevant to the readers and and to the characters as relevant to the readers as it was to the characters um and it was also a continuing chapter in in magneto's evolution yeah i mean the 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 reason why at the end of my run magneto does this sort of uh samurai suicide around the back of the world was because the the company had decided they wanted him back to being a villain and they 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 were not they didn't want my my evolution of him to continue which was ultimately I wanted him to take over the team right to and be a much more conflicted and ideally hoped um, dramatically accessible uh, axle for the others to to revolve around than Charlie. Yeah, the I mean, with Charlie is that that what you saw was what you got, and that was it. You know, he 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 wasn't really going to change because he was fulfilling his destiny. Whereas, Magneto, put Magneto in those same in that same position, you have the inherent conflict that that Charlie posed to him, which is, how can he, how does he turn away from the damage he suffered as a as a young man and as a child, and and try to use the the brighter angels of his nature to build a better world rather than 
being a slave to the darker angels. Right. I, I think that that's sort of that that dynamic between them like that, whereas, you know, Magneto isn't the out and out, you know, he's not Lex Luthor. He's not Dr. Doom. You know, it's not yeah. as cut and dried. And that's one of the things that I think is so well done in, in really all the movies that he's been in, whether it was. Oh, no. Yeah. Ian McKellen is just too darn wonderful. Yeah. And and. And to see Fassbender do the, the sort of early stages of all of that was, was great, too. And I, I sort of – I selfishly want there to be more of movies with both casts so that we can continue to see all of it, oh, although yeah. I don't know, I mean, I, I don't know what I, we I get. I also wanted – I would have – if it were me, I would have held off on Charlie being crippled till the last movie in the trilogy. Right. Or, or at least the second movie because, heck, it was so much fun seeing him on his feet. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it, but that's that's me as a as a geek, not not a producer. Um, the the idea with with God loves was to to just make it as plain as possible what this team is all about and why this team is all about, which is why the opening four pages are so stark. Yeah. I mean, you can't you can't present a more literal conflict than you see with those two kids, and then Magneto coming in at the end too late. Yeah, uh, that sets the stage, and that establishes the conflict from beginning through to the end. It and, really made it clear that uh, that was a, such a different story than what me personally was used to seeing and and I don't even know if you could use the word bastard in the regular comics but the fact that there's this one shot that I'll always remember it's a panel obviously of of Logan's just like let's get those bastards and I was just like whoa you know it's like I, I know you know he's always kind of portrayed with that mentality but he's so blunt about it and the whole thing's so dark that's you know, it's it's such a it's such a great story and yeah. and, and the fact well, that it's it, it's it wasn't this one wasn't entirely for kids. Yeah. And it was supposed to be a whole, you know, it, I wanted to establish a, a, a new benchmark. And fortunately, we were, we were able to. And there have been other good novel-sized X-Men stories since then. But to, to my mind, I have yet to see another evocation be as as successful in terms of presenting character and conflict. Yeah. Even, you know, even um and that uh, the fact that people are still reading it and people are still enjoying it thirty five years later is is sort of breathtaking. Yeah. And and so to to tidy up the whole concept, the fact that there would also be, you know, Kitty's fairy tale, just be like, look, we can, we can have fun too. And, you know, it's just it, it was such a great I mean, the whole run, it's so amazing, the 17 years that you did, because... Well, the thing about fairy tale was that it was just trying to put my head inside kitties and figure out, okay, if I'm 13, what's cool? Yeah. I'm telling a story. And she's she's telling it to Ilyana, because her, you know, the, the, kid's, the kid's scared. And it's the kind of thing where everybody's walking by and they hear a couple of words and they're hooked. Yeah, right, exactly. So it's, it, and 
what so many readers never or kept failing to realize is how ridiculously creative Dave Cockrum was. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of not simply creating the X-Men, but but being able to turn them on their on their heads and and come up I mean the the, the, the Bamfs, the mini nightcrawlers. Yeah. Of Logan was just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you're thinking the the Tasmanian devil with <laughs> with a cigar and an attitude. Right, exactly. You know, uh it it's how you know, how do we how do we take all of the the tropes that that everybody's used to seeing and turn them on our, their heads and make them fantastic but at the same time charming but at the same time surprisingly innocent because after all it's be, the story is being told by a kid yeah <laughs> you know if if Kitty were if Kitty were even able to tell the story now, it would be a totally different, more textured, and probably not as much fun in the giggle sense. Right, because also she'd be you know she's telling Ileana she's they're basically the same age. Well, At least that's the way I think of them. Two older, more experienced. Yeah, chicas. <laughs> right. You exactly. Know, I mean the the. That was the that was always the trick with first the X Men and then the New Mutants, holding on to the fact that these are kids, and you know the kid is doing stuff that that is aging her really fast emotionally, but there's still a part of her that that is a kid and and is trying to relate to everything as a kid. And um, and ideally, kids like to have fun. Absolutely, and you know, as as to to sort of pull on that thread, as as fun as it was to read all these years, all these uh, you know, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of issues. Uh, it's been a real thrill for me to get to talk to you about this. You know, to just ah, shucks. sort of. You know, just kind of have a, on a on a different level talk about comics. You know, in in sort of the the way that a lot of people don't appreciate them. You know, tying them into science fiction and history, and you know, just well, the the I mean, the thing is that that again, going back to the Kitty's fairy tale, one of the advantage of of working with with colleagues who have kids. Um. Because my own kids came along too long after my leaving the book. Okay. Um, was that you just watch what's going on? <laughs> you watch how the kids interact. You watch how they relate to each other, and you you take, as they say, copious notes in the back of your brain uh, to to find a way to. To present the most fantastical of events and circumstances, i.e., walking through walls or walking through dimensions, but but keep it grounded in people that, when a reader picks up the book and and sees Nightcrawler, 
he may look like this monster, but there's something in the way he deals with things and the way he relates to people in just the whole, his whole movie uh, swashbuckling side of his character. Yeah, the, the Errol Flynn of The Errol uh, Flynn thing Night that reaches Crawler, out yeah. and touches, uh, you know, the part of you that says, I can do that, or I want to do that, or I wish I could do that, uh, and, and feels plausible. The, you, you know, the, the trick about doing a really good story, regardless of whether it's prose or comics, is you find a way to make the characters, especially when they're as unreal and fantastic as, as the X-Men can often turn out to be, accessible on an emotional level to the readers. Right. People, that the, they are deep down inside, people that remind the readers of people that they know and that, that who face situations either in ways that, that strike a, a chord of recognition in that I know someone who's been like that, who does that, or I wish I could do that. And if you're very fortunate, and the X-Men had a lot of occasions where we were, you get you get a raw emotional positive reaction out of out of your out of your audience because they re, they see elements in this fantastical reality that are recognizable to them that they can bond with that that touch them on a deeper level than just uh two dimensional images in a book right and well, exactly that that's the whole that's the game right there if you can get a, if you can find a way to do that if you can find a way to have the reader go holy cow what happens next because they're they're caught up in the in the events then then we can all, you know, you, you can go home happy because, you know, A, they'll come back next issue. <laughs> right. And B, you've, you've done it right for this issue. Exactly. And it's, it's a very simple desire. It's also the hardest damn thing in the world to do. <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, Chris Claremont. And the website is chrisclaremont.com. Uh, obviously, X-Men Gold is now available. Uh, you can find out about the e-books there. Uh, Murata the She-Wolf everything else is all at chrisclaremont.com again thank you so much for taking so much of your time I uh... Uh, the perils of talking to someone who is trained to be paid by the word <laughs> exactly well thanks so much it was a huge thrill and uh, I hope uh, I hope we get to talk again somewhere down the road well, pleasure is mine and I hope so too alright thanks a lot that's Chris Claremont chrisclaremont.com X-Men Gold now in stores the High Frontier novels available as ebooks at chrisclaremont.com and of course Merida, the She-Wolf. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you, huge thank you to Chris Claremont for being amazingly generous with his time. We'll see you next time here on the Blackcast. I've got kitty pride.